Investing Compass is brought to you by Morningstar Australia. We'll run through the fundamentals of investing, take a deep dive of concepts and offer practical explanations, tools and resources that will allow you to invest confidently. The information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we get into today's episode, we have a request and I guess a contest, Shani. So the request is that you rate the podcast and leave comments for us. And the contest is that if you rate it, leave a comment and email me at the address that's in the podcast notes. By March 15th, we will go in and pull, assuming we get more than one, pull (laughs) a random um, submission out and we'll give you a free subscription to Morningstar Premium for a year, which is valued at $649. So I think that's a good incentive. I don't know about you, Shani. I'd really like to enter. Okay. Well, you can, you can enter. I am <laughs> nervous about what you would put about me, but, uh, but yeah, why don't we get started on today's episode? Okay. So today we're going to tackle the question, is the market overvalued? And we often hear the phrases from market commentators in the news and in conversation with investors, the market is overvalued or the market is undervalued. Yeah. And so when you hear people refer to the market being overvalued or undervalued, it's really important to understand the context with which they're saying this. So let's first start talking about valuation. So valuation is the process of determining the present value of an asset. And it's really important to note here that price and value are two very different concepts, and the price of an asset doesn't always reflect its value. For example, a Telstra share is valued by our analysts at $3.80. And the last close, as we're saying this, Telstra is trading for $3.16. This means that based on our estimate of the fair value of Telstra shares, they are undervalued. It is trading for less than what we think it's worth. And in the recent past, there have been many calls by market commentators and investment professionals that the market is overvalued. And what's meant by this is that they look at all the stocks in a particular market and see overall if the assets within it are trading above what they're worth. So Morningstar Premium has up-to-date valuations um, for most major markets, and we're currently seeing Australia with a price-to-fair value of 1.12, which means it's slightly overvalued, and the U.S. sits at 1.11. Yeah, and all these pronouncements, it's important to remember that this is about the market in general. And the market is a really complex system that involves assets from different sectors and geographies, so keep that in mind. Yeah, that's right, Mark. So declaring that a market is overvalued doesn't mean that it's void of opportunity. Um, So there may be particular sectors, industries, or even companies themselves that are undervalued and unloved. So it's important to remember this, um, that it's a pretty blanket statement and it doesn't declare the market is uninvestable. I sometimes feel undervalued and unloved as well. but So I understand how these sectors feel. But what we're going to talk about today... This is not just going to be a therapy session for me. What we're going to talk about today is we're going to look at current marketing indicators and try to understand whether the market is overvalued or undervalued. And then we'll talk about how this might influence your investing decisions. So 
why don't we start with one of the most popular market valuation indicators, which is the price-to-earnings ratio. The price-to-earnings ratio, or PE ratio, is a ratio of the company's share price divided by its earnings per share. And earnings per share is just the net profit divided by the number of shares. So, for example, a company whose shares are trading at $1 and has earnings per share of $0.10 has a PE ratio of 10. The PE ratio is used by investors to determine the relative value of a company's shares in an apples-to-apples comparison and whether it's over or undervalued. So in other words, investors use this measure as a point of comparison between two things. So it could be different companies, sectors, or markets. Yeah, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at markets over time. That's the comparative valuation that we're going to make today and the perspective we're going to try to bring. And so if we look at the S&P 500, so the 500 biggest stocks by market weight in the U.S., the PE ratio, PE ratio has traditionally been between 7 and 22, and that's going back to 1900. And we're currently sitting at 385 we turn our attention closer to home and look at Australia, P ratio of the all ordinaries was around 9.6 in 1980, and currently it's at 56.6. And if we look at the more recent past for Australia, it was sitting around 18.5 in February before the pandemic. So what do all these numbers mean? And does it mean um, that the market is currently overvalued? So from a historical standard, yes, this doesn't mean that the market will correct immediately and you'll see stocks going down, but more speaks to the market's long-term prospects. Yeah. And instead of just looking at that head uh, that headline number that we're talking about, we need to dive into it a bit. So one thing with any relative valuation measure, so a ratio like the PE, is that you need context to understand them. They're often sold to investors as shortcuts, but you need to understand what is driving the ratios and if they are potentially being misinterpreted. So as Shani said, the PE ratio is a company's share price divided by its earnings per share. And this measure can be quite volatile as both the price and the earnings can change significantly. Last year is a perfect example of this. As stock prices rose significantly since March 2020, while well, earnings collapsed for many companies due to COVID-related impacts. This has resulted in an unusually high PE ratio. And our analysts here at Morningstar, they expect the earnings dip last year to be temporary and um, for it to revert in 2021 to a more normalized level. So in this case, we need to take the PE of the market with a grain of salt. Yeah, and there's another piece of context we need to add to that market valuation. And we spoke about this before, but one factor, of course, is the level of interest rates. Low interest rates have driven the price of stocks higher. Central banks around the world have pushed interest rates to extreme lows in order to stimulate the economy, including here in Australia. And what this leads to is something called the substitution effect. So investors who are not getting the returns they need in cash, bonds, and fixed income, they come to stocks to achieve that return, which inflates stock prices. Yeah, that's right, Shani. The one other thing that low interest rates do is they increase the value of shares. And we've covered this a bit in a previous episode on interest rates, but I wanted to quickly go back through this. Interest rates have an impact on how you value a company. So the value of a company is the future earnings that company generates. Analysts estimate those earnings, and then they use a discount rate to calculate the value of the company today. And they discount these future cash flows because they're occurring in the future, and a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. A key input into that discount rate is, of course, the level of interest rates. So lower interest rates mean the discount rate is lower. And a lower discount rate means that future cash flows are worth more. 
because you are discounting them less. So future cash flows are worth more. The company is worth more. Now, I know that this might be hard for some listeners to follow, but the high-level takeaway is that low interest rates make equities worth more, which means it's difficult to compare ratios like the P-E ratio to a historical P-E ratio because interest rates have never been this low. The question, of course, is do the level of interest rates justify the high levels of valuation? And that's what we're trying to explore today. So why don't we take a look at another measure that people use? So how about dividend level, Shani? Everybody loves dividends, Mark. Everybody does love dividends, right? <laughs> dividends are a choice for companies. So I think first, um, it's pretty important to issue a disclaimer and acknowledge that it is a choice for a company to pay out a dividend. And dividends come from profit and profit has two destinies. So it can either be reinvested into the company or paid out to shareholders as a cash payment, which is a dividend. And dividend yields as an indicator for valuation, um, therefore can be unreliable to a degree. However, if we speak in generalities with dividend yield, when stocks are undervalued, dividend yields are high. And the reason for this is found if you look at the formula used to calculate dividend yield. Dividend yield is equal to a company's annual dividend per share divided by a stock's market price. So when stocks market when a stock's market price is lower, dividends are higher comparatively. And when a price is higher, dividends are comparatively lower. I like how you describe dividends or earnings as having destinies. Yeah. That's very like new age of you, Shani. <laughs> I feel like you should have some sort of crystal or I don't know what. I know. But. Me with my crystals and you probably with your journal from earlier on in the episode. Exactly. Exactly. So as Shani explained, dividends, we can compare dividend levels over different time periods. So when we look historically at dividend yields, the S&P 500 has mostly stayed between 7% and 3%. So the lowest yield was 1.11%. And that occurred in August 2000, and that was the peak of the tech bubble. And right now, the dividend yield is at 1.52%. So those two indicators seem pretty convincing, but there's a couple more that we can talk about to cover all our bases. And one of them is the CAPE ratio, or the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. This ratio was made famous by Robert Schiller, who's a Nobel laureate and professor of economics. And it's similar to P the PE ratio that we spoke about before, except that the denominator of the ratio is not just earnings per share for the year, but inflation-adjusted earnings per share over the trailing 10 years. And the purpose of doing this is that it smooths out fluctuations in corporate profits over different parts of the business cycle. And this is especially important now because of what's happened in 2020. So in simple terms, when an economy is doing well, profits tend to rise because we're all spending more money. But during recessions, we spend less and profits decrease. So this ratio smooths out these periods. Again, though, this ratio is meant to show whether a market is over or undervalued. If we look at Schiller PE, it has stayed between 10 and 20 for the majority of the last 100 years. So it's currently sitting at 26.1, and the only time that it's been higher was on Black Tuesday before the Great Depression, right before the tech bubble burst in the late 1990s, and right before the financial crisis in 2007, which are all pretty significant events. So what we can take from this is that the levels of the Schiller P definitely points to the market being overvalued as it currently is. All right, let's, uh, let's do one more indicator, um, just for the hell of it. So uh, Shani, go ahead with the last one. 
Okay, so we can't be an Investing Compass episode without a mention of Buffett, so it's fitting that we have our last indicator as the Buffett Indicator, also known as market cap to GDP. And he said that this ratio is probably the best single measure of where valuations stand at any given moment. Yeah, and that's that's a pretty glowing review. So the market cap to GDP ratio is the value of all public stocks in a region or market divided by the gross domestic product of the same region or market. So usually we're talking about a country here. And the principle of this ratio is that when the market cap is higher than GDP, the stock market is overvalued. If the market cap is below GDP, the stock market is undervalued. That's right. So you can think of the market cap to GDP ratio comparing the value of all stocks at an aggregate level compared to the value of a country's total output. And when we look at how the market cap to GDP ratio is faring, there are only three times that the market cap was above GDP in the US. Uh, so one of these times was the tech bubble and the other was before the financial crisis. The last is now, so we're in pretty good company. So that's the last of our ratios that shows by all historical indicators, we are well and truly investing in overvalued markets. And although this can be indicative of the current state of the market, we should acknowledge that these indicators are all backward looking. So markets have constantly proven economists wrong with their predictions, and these ratios will not be able to tell us where the market will go from here. All right. So let's talk about the current climate and what investors should do. And again, as we briefly covered, investing in an overvalued market doesn't mean everything is overvalued. These ratios are looking at entire markets and regions. And within these markets and regions are opportunities. Often these undervalued opportunities are those that are unloved by investors, where consumer confidence is lacking, but the outlook is strong for the future. It seems like these industries were even more distinct in 2020 as the pandemic ripped consumer confidence from certain industries that were disproportionately impacted. An example of this would be the travel and tourism industry, where lockdowns and changing regulations have halted international travel and domestic travel has been severely impacted. And this is reflected on our global best ideas list. So our analysts compile a list of their best stock ideas globally each month. And as the COVID-related restrictions took hold, the list became dotted with travel and tourism players that have good long-term outlook, uh, outlooks, but lots of short-term uncertainty. In our view, these companies were undervalued compared to the rest of the market and represented good long-term opportunities. And one overarching point for investing now is long-term time horizons. So if you're an investor with a long time horizon and you're waiting for the best opportunity to invest, countless studies have shown that there is no better time than now. Yeah, that's right, Shani. And one of your favorite sayings is that it's time in the market, not timing the market. Yeah, exactly. So there have been quite a few looks at long-term performance of equity markets, but one of the most convincing statistics that I've heard and that I quote all the time to friends who are anxious about their market returns is that if you take any 20-year rolling period from 1900, so you can pick any year from 1900 till now, in 20 years' time, you would have had a positive return. So time is on your side. Yeah. And Shani, I would like to know who these friends are. You tell me I'm your only friends, but apparently you're out there talking to people about 20-year rolling market returns, but we can talk about that after the episode. I think so. All right. So all of this, of course, is assuming that you're looking for new opportunities. If you're in existing investments and you're nervous about the valuation levels of the market, what do you do? Should you switch into more conservative options and take profits? Should you stay invested in case the market continues to go up? I think it's important to remember here that none of us have a crystal ball to predict where the market will go. 
And this is why it's important to ensure that you've constructed your portfolio around your goals. So we speak about how to do this in the portfolio construction episode, but it's focused around ensuring that you're only taking on the risks that you need to to get to your goal instead of taking on as much risk as possible in the hopes of maximizing your wealth. So if you're getting close to the end of your time horizon for your goal, you might have a periodic rebalance set up to bring your allocations back to the levels that you originally set for your goal. So for example, if you had a 40% domestic equity allocation that now makes up 60% of your portfolio because of how well equities has done, you can adjust back to 40% to reduce your exposure um, of risk to assets that have run. Yeah, and if you're making additional investments, you could also adjust your strategy to invest into more defensive assets instead of into more overvalued equities. So unlike rebalancing, this means that you're not selling any assets that you've made a profit on, and that will save you capital gains tax. So if you're several years away from your goal, it may hinder more than help if you change your allocations. When markets are perceived as overvalued, it's a common response from investments investors to feel nervous and some sell anticipating a drop in the market. Um, and many investors have an action bias. They always feel like they have to do something. Yeah. And the market noise often makes people want to switch in and out of investments. And this has been proven to be detrimental to investment returns. And this is called the behavior gap. And the behavior gap represents the returns that the average investor gets versus the average investor returns. So if you invested in a fund and you just let it go for a while without touching it, versus if you continue to move into and out of different funds because you are nervous about market conditions, for example, markets being overvalued. So Morningstar has been doing a study called Mind the Gap since 2010, quantifying this impact. Um, and there are a few insights from this study. More volatile funds had larger gaps. And this correlation makes sense. When there's volatility, it causes fear and nervousness in investors and leads to redemptions. Yeah. And another insight from this report is that generally during big pivot years for the markets, this will create worse outcomes for investors. That gap will get bigger. So what this means is that investors sell after a bear market and they buy after a bull market, even though one of the most well-known investing adages is to buy low and sell high. So we all know this, but in practice, it's very different when emotions come into play. This played out during the GFC for US investors where the gap widened even further. We saw a lot of panic selling at the bottom which means that people missed out on a pretty dramatic rebound. So what was the actual gap? The gap between investor return and investment return was 2% in equities-based funds and 1.44% in alternative funds. So the lesson we can glean from this is that over the long term, switching in and out of funds and investments is usually to your detriment. Yeah, so we've talked about theory, but let's start getting a little bit personal. So I think using these examples hopefully makes it a little more relevant for listeners. So why don't we start with you, Shani? So in a previous episode, you talked about your long-term goal of retirement. And just as a reminder, and I'm not just saying this because we work together, you <laughs> said you were not going to retire for 38 years. So what is your reaction to the market potentially being overvalued? I feel like you're making this like a verbal contract, but I have to stay here for 38 years. 
It, it is a verbal contract. It's been recorded and lots of people have heard it. So I think it meets the definition. <laughs> right. So um, the vast majority of my investing life is in front of me. So as you said earlier, one of my favorite sayings is that what matters is time in the market and not timing the market. So I continue to make sure that I'm diversified and I'm looking at valuation when I consider certain opportunities, um, but I can concentrate more on continuing to save money and continuing to invest. I'm not going to stop putting money into the market. I know there's uh, definitely going to be ups and downs over my 38-year timeline. Um, I also hope that the amount that I'll be saving increases from here as my salary continues to grow. So I'm going to keep plugging away and getting as much into the market as I can as early as I can. All right. So we've used you as an example multiple times. I guess it's only fair to turn to me. Mm-hmm. Um I guess I'm a lot closer to retirement or death. At some at some point, we have to explain why you think I'm going to die in four years. But, You've taken this out of context. Well, maybe, but at some point, we should explain it. But when I was your age, I mean, I know that's quite a way of starting a story, but when I was in your age, I was pretty diligent, just as you are, about saving and investing. So I'm in a spot now where my current portfolio is in pretty good shape in terms of my goals. So when I look at valuation levels, I do think it potentially could have more of an impact on what actions I'm going to take. So what I've actually done in the past couple of years is that I've taken the dividend reinvestment plan off of most of my accounts, and that is the automatic reinvestment of dividends and more shares. So instead of buying shares at potentially stretched valuation levels, I'm letting some cash build up. I'm also doing that with some of my savings. So I'm saving more into cash and investing less of what I'm saving. And this cash cushion will enable me to take advantage of lower valuation levels when and if they occur. Now, there is one really important caveat here. It's one thing to describe this approach, but it's also another thing to know when to buy. And I will admit that I had this cash reserve during the market fall in February and March, and I managed to put very little of it into the market because I thought the market was going to fall further. And that's really the inherent problem with any strategy like this. I would have thought that you were more towards your transition to retirement age, but that strategy sounds like you're kind of at the middle of your investing career, mate. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, you still have 38 years here, so assuming you enjoy <laughs> working with me, you should hope that I'm not going to retire. But um, I do have another retirement perspective to share. So that is my mother. Um, so I do invest. Who does listen to these, by the way? I know she listens to them because you send them to her. Yeah. <laughs> so she's actually probably learning about what's happening with her accounts now. Um, so I do invest money for my mother. My mother is, we'll generously say, a couple years into retirement. And One thing that's really critical as you're approaching retirement or you're just in retirement is the sequencing of your returns. And that basically means that having large losses as you approach retirement or early in your retirement can really impact your long-term retirement outcomes. So it's not just the average return you get over time. It's also the sequencing of when returns occur, when these down returns occur. So in this case, valuations could be more worrisome to somebody in this stage of life as you don't have time left to save and invest to make up for lower returns. So what I've done with my mother is to take more of a bucket approach. And that means that she holds enough cash to support five years worth of living expenses, which hopefully means that nothing would have to be sold from her portfolio in a down market. So if there is a large drop, she can just hold on and hopefully markets will recover during this five-year time period where she does have enough cash to continue to live. And we'll talk more about this bucket approach in a future episode, but go ahead and Google it and you can read up on it. 
So I think we've answered the question that we sought out to today. Um, so let's give it a quick recap. So the question today was, is the market overvalued? And if we're using the historical indicators as a measure, such as PE ratio, CAPE ratio, dividend yields, and the Buffett indicator, they're all pointing towards the market being moderately to extremely overvalued. It is, however, important to remember that the market being overvalued doesn't mean that it's void of opportunity. There are still sectors, individual stocks, and industries that could be thriving in the current economic conditions and have a promising outlook. So whether you're looking to find opportunities or shift assets out of aggressive asset allocations, it's important to anchor it back to the one reason why you invest, and that's your financial goals. Always consider what your financial plan is, the goal that you set out to achieve, and how your portfolio is structured to achieve that. You can choose action or inaction based on this. All right. So I'm going to go through a couple of resources that we have. So number one, we mentioned our global best ideas list. So if you are looking for opportunities in today's market, this is a really good place to start. So our analysts, as we mentioned, put together a list each month of their best ideas from all around the globe. As, of course, the name suggests, we don't name things very creatively here at Morningstar. Um, but one of the main factors that they look at when they're choosing things to go on this list is how undervalued and unloved the stock is compared to its future prospects. So our next creatively named resource is the Morningstar Guide to Share Investing. So this guide will walk through some of the ratios that we mentioned and how to use them to find opportunities or just to monitor your portfolio to understand when and if it's time to sell. Of course, our analysts also take the heavy lifting out of that for you, and they do all this analysis in their research reports. And then finally, the Morningstar Guide to Portfolio Construction, which we've mentioned on previous episodes, and the Morningstar Guide to Selecting Investments. So if you want to understand how to structure your portfolio to help meet your goals, pick your asset allocation, those two guides, and actually buy investments as well, or pick investments, those two guides are the places you should turn. So thank you guys very much for joining us in this episode of Investing Compass. If there is a particular particular topic that you'd like us to cover, or if you have any feedback or comments, please email us or me and remember the contest. So if you leave us a comment, if you give us a rating and leave us a comment and then email the email address that's in the episode notes by March 15th, then we will pull one lucky winner to win a Morningstar Premium subscription for a year. So thank you guys very much. Any advice is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation, or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.